You can compare what each gospel writer wrote about Jesus and his ministry in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January. It's titled, Jesus, A Study of the Words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Jesus, A Study on the Words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, costs fourteen ninety nine. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, Jesus, A Study on the Words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After my abortion, I felt great relief because the crisis was done. The decision was made. Now I had to try and live with it. It led to a deep pain in my heart that I tried to cover. You start out with the Bible as God's Word. And then you keep your big mouth shut and listen to what it has to say. And if it says something you don't like, tough on you, not tough on the Bible. I assure you, you are no worse sinner than a Peter who denies Christ three times after standing up and confessing boldly he would never leave him. Minnesota waterfowlers love listening to issues, etc. <laughs> It's a good lesson in how you consume your news. A good lesson is, especially if you see it on social media, don't believe it the first time you read it, or at least ask some questions the first time you read it. Another good lesson, read beyond the headline. That's tough to do in a clickbait age, but the headline is often there to attract your attention. It may not tell the whole or even the right story and maybe wait a day or two and let some other news outlets report on the same story and see if the story is what it purports to be. It's a lesson learned by many who were looking at a story several days ago about a Minnesota Methodist church that reportedly asked the old members, the older members, maybe 60 plus, to leave and to not come back for some time, maybe even apply for membership at a later date. Well, the story has evolved a little bit. And it's a lesson in how we consume our news and maybe even on how these kind of things get reported. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Wednesday afternoon, January the 22nd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly joins us to talk about media coverage of this Minnesota Methodist church that reportedly asked its older members to leave. Kathy Altman will be with us after that. We'll talk about the need for safety regulations in abortion clinics She has authored a column for USA Today titled, I Was an Abortionist, the Abortion Industry Isn't Willing to Prioritize Patient Safety. We'll talk about a Supreme Court case on taxpayer funds for private schools being heard today. Joy Pullman of The Federalist will be our guest. And then Molly Hemingway of Fox News joins us to talk about the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. Bring us up to date as far as we can go today. Joining us to discuss media coverage of a Minnesota Methodist church that reportedly asked older members to leave, Terry Mattingly, senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate in the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Is this story involving a Minnesota church attempting to reach younger people common for many churches? It sure is right now, especially among liberal, progressive, mainline Protestant churches who are aging rapidly. But if you look at the demographics, evangelicals and Southern Baptists, for example, would not be facing the same aging issue as the mainliners, 
But I think you could say they're about a decade to two decades behind and on the same path. When you look at things that you and I have talked about before, like birth rates, whether they're making converts. So, yes, this is something that all over the ecclesiastical structures of America, people are looking at these trends and they are worried. The other thing that I think people should think about that they might not think about when they first hear about this story, they might not link it to a topic that's huge in multiple denominations that usually are, it usually gets argued about under the label worship wars. And worship wars are basically when you have enough people in church that you kind of turn your church into an AM radio. And you have multiple worship services, and you you pick the worship service slash radio station that you want to go to it because of the music and worship approach that they offer. So you say you're a huge evangelical megachurch. I wrote about one years ago out uh, in Arizona that it had what it called its classic service. Now, this was for baby boomers, essentially, and it was built on music. They said all the hymns and everything was meant to sound like the Eagles. And then they had a second service, which they called Harbor Service, and all the music there was supposed to sound kind of like U2 and sort of anthemic rock but not acoustic-based Crosby, Stills, Nash-type stuff. Then they had a third service called The Seven. What a wonderful name for a worship service, The Seven. And The Seven was based on progressive rock, postmodern rock, even dance electronic music was being used. And you, you picked the service whose music you liked, and then once a year, when they do, for example, Easter, they would have fits because they would have to try to create a service in which these three groups of musical worshipers would all be in the same service at the same time. And would they be able to tolerate each other for one service, let alone something as important as Easter? What does that have to do with the current story? Well, when you're in a denomination where things are declining and all the numbers are coming down, it's harder and harder to have those separate services. In a lot of Episcopal congregations, there will be an early Mass, say at 8 o'clock, in which they use Rite 1. They'll do something very formal. And... If there's any music at all, it will just be like a pipe organ and maybe one or two very traditional hymns. Then later, they'll do right to the more modern language, and it might be anything from a choir to more upbeat music to in a charismatic or evangelical Episcopal church, they may have a praise band, you know, with drums and guitars and all that other baby boomer stuff. But just as much a part of that is that the elderly often want to be in a quieter service without 
little kids running up and down the aisle, and what in one famous Orthodox sermon, a bishop returned, referred to as children making holy noise, contributing their holy noise to the service. Well, there are elderly people that don't want to be in a service with a lot of holy noise, unless maybe it's their grandkids. But when you're down into lower numbers in churches, and I've seen figures that in some mainline denominations, as many as 85% of all of their congregations, the number of active members has fallen below a magic number that you and I've talked about before, which is about 85 to 90 people. That's how many people it takes in a typical mainline church to pay the salary and benefits package of a full-time pastor. You go much below that, and the denomination has to start helping. So all of a sudden, can you have two different services that keeps these two age groups apart? No. And then as your church begins to shrink and shrink, and the demographics push the ages older and older, and the birth rate means there's fewer and fewer children, does that church then become attractive to young couples with children who are seeking a church? And the answer is no. And in the case of this particular church that everybody's talking about, the Cottage Grove United Methodist Church, which is actually not a separate church. It's a part of a double church. But the Cottage Grove congregation is apparently down to 25 to 29 members. And according to the press coverage, there's one family left in the church with children. And the United Methodist Church, which is in a lot of trouble right now in terms of demographics and membership, wants to try to restart this church. So do you see how I've linked those things? You have the worship wars was one level of the thing. Let's see if we can keep the generations apart and make them at peace with all these different worship style issues. And maybe you even preach different to the younger people than you preach to the elderly, who are still important. They're giving big gifts, and you're probably, the church is in their will. But when you decline down to, say, 100 and under, you can't afford those two services anymore. Things get too small, and eventually you have to put everybody in the same service. And that's where struggles begin. And if you don't have evangelism and you don't have a high birth rate or a normal birth rate even, all of a sudden you're looking at a mostly empty congregation and almost everybody there has gray hair. So does that give you a picture of the lay of the land on this story? So why was it, explain to me from a journalist's perspective, why was it that I read in the local paper that was dealing with this about a day ago, something that sounded far more kind of clickbaity, that is, these older people were being asked right. to leave the church and maybe we'll let you come back when we reopen the church. And then I pick up my laptop and see Sarah Pulliam Bailey's Washington Post story, very excellent story, by the way, that doesn't sound like that as much anymore, maybe a big misunderstanding. Why does that happen? Okay, well, first of all, Sarah is a religion writer and understands some of the subtleties here. 
I didn't see that much of a huge difference between the two stories, quite frankly. Look at it this way. We'll say it this way. We're going to try to restart this church, and we would like you to all leave. And if you're good, you can maybe come back after we've restarted the church. Does that sound like a pretty decent summary of the original story? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, which ended up with the Associated Press story, which went out nationwide, was even shorter and had even fewer nuancing details. It was really blunt. United Methodist Church asked elderly people to leave, you know, sort of thing. Okay, now listen to this statement. So you've got a struggling church. The local United Methodist Conference decides to restart the church. They send somebody in, and they create a plan where the elderly members of the church can travel 15 minutes away to their partnership church, the church that they're legally a a part of as a double church. And they also can cooperate in the restarting of the church by shoveling the snow, cutting the grass, continuing to contribute, and they can be a part of the project. And this is where it's not clear whether the people who sign on for a special role in the restart, whether they're supposed to leave as well. That's the part of the two stories that that clash a little bit, and I'm not sure what the detail is there. But, by the way, whatever happens, when it gets restarted, when they come back, they're going to have a younger minister. The younger minister and his team and the hopefully the young families that come in are going to have changed the worship style, the music style, and the programmatic priorities of the church will have been changed while they were gone or outvoted or whatever. And you can come back and be a part of that totally new church, kind of if you agree to be good. Do you hear a whole lot of difference between those two? And why some of the elderly sitting there in the pews are saying, they're telling us that if we don't do what they want us to do, we should just leave. The second one is much more nuanced, probably more accurate to what is happening, but you know that some of those elderly people in the pews heard it exactly the way the original story was worded. So I I think the two stories are not that radically different, and this is flat painful, no matter how you word it. You've got a church sitting on prime land, wonderful detail in Sarah Pulliam Bailey's story, that you know the local conference is sitting there looking at that land and thinking what they could make off the sale of that land, which is described as pretty prime property near some prominent businesses. And meanwhile, this gets us into the things that are not in either story. I did a little bit of looking. This church, which Sarah also, it's very appropriately notes, is a part of a very progressive part of the United States. So even though there's mainly elderly people sitting in the pews, they're already with the progressive theological orientation of the Twin Cities and Minneapolis. That's, all of that is a part of, in the Methodist Church, the North Central Conference. And in 2008, 
the North Central Conference had 1,381,000 people, give or take a few. And in 2015, it had fallen by more than 7% down to 1,193,000. And that's one of the parts of the global United Methodist Church that is shrinking the fastest. So this is an area where United Methodism as a whole is not doing well, which if I was writing a follow-up story, I would go in and ask more questions about the theology of the church growth people who are behind these strategies, and I'd go back in and try to do a story specifically on the North Central Conference and its attempts to stop its churches from shrinking, because they're shrinking very rapidly. That's a crucial part of the story, a part of the frame around this one tiny struggling congregation. We'll talk more about that context of a progressive denomination struggling against progressive ideas, with progressive ideas, and bound by a a split coming up very soon to become more progressive with Terry Mattingly next. on the rock children of the heavenly father on my heart imprint your image rejoice rejoice believers and so much more hi this is pastor will whedon inviting you to join us for our hymn sing at the 2020 issues etc making the case conference this year's theme northern lights danish and scandinavian hymns making the case is friday june 12th and saturday june 13th at Concordia University, Chicago. Find out more and register at issuesetc.org. Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Smartest listeners in radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Now that you have packed away the Christmas ornaments and Christmas for the season, it's time for some contemplation. Those Christmas are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam. The glitter has dropped off and they're being held together with toothpicks. Don't celebrate another Christmas hearkening back to the age of glitter balls. Enter the 2020s with Ad Crucem's beautifully designed and lovingly made Christmonds. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about media coverage of a Minnesota Methodist church that reportedly asked older members to leave. Terry Mattingly is our guest, senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, should what is happening in the United Methodist Church, both globally and nationally, be included in the coverage of this small local congregation, given the fact that the denomination as a whole will become intensely more progressive after a upcoming split? By that, you mean the United States branch? Absolutely, of yes. Of the denomination? Yeah. Well, as Sarah Pulliam Bailey stresses, and I think it's appropriate, Minnesota's already with the changes. I think the other way to think about it, though, is when the U.S. branch emerges and the larger of the two U.S. branches will either be attempting to be neutral on marriage and sexuality or it will be openly liberal. Uh, We don't know whether there's going to be a three-way split or a two-way split. But the American church, you're right, will at the very least be neutral on these doctrinal issues or try to be. But here's the thing to think about. If you're going to look at evangelism and church growth and starting new churches and having the money to support congregations that kind of don't have enough money to fund themselves anymore, the fastest growing parts of the American church are primarily individual congregations in the Midwest, but probably in a belt from Texas across the Sun Belt over into the Carolinas, and a lot of the larger growing churches within United Methodism are more conservative or more evangelical in nature. There are exceptions to that, but that's the broad trend. I've always wanted to get my hands on it. I've heard people talk about reports that indicate that if 30 to 35 percent of the U.S. evangelical church breaks off and goes to the right, doctrinally speaking, they will take with them a larger percentage of money and resources than you might at first think. In other words, these are often larger churches that fight above their weight. Let's put it that way. So what happens to a church that's already struggling financially when those churches, that include many that are growing, when they depart, is that new remaining left-of-center structure, are they going to have more money or less money with which to help prop up or grow their struggling congregations? And the answer, of course, is they're going to have significantly less money. As we prepare for the general conference, where a lot of this is going to end up being, the final versions are going to be negotiated and either pass or not pass, I think it's very important that the center-left and far-left people in the United Methodist Church seem to have realized that if they try to fight to prevent the doctrinal conservatives from leaving, that's going to put them in what I snarkily referred to as the ghost. They're going to have a visitation from the ghost of the Episcopal Church future. And where they're going to be spending 
millions of dollars on lawyers and lawsuits and tying up a lot of what resources they have left in an attempt to end up with buildings that will then be empty and, as the conservatives have to leave, in other words, why fight, why not go ahead and work it out and try to have some sort of peaceful divorce? And that seems to be what's going to happen now. But this is a very important story. Someone needs to go to the more liberal sections, and once again, liberal means doctrine, needs to go to the more liberal sections of the United Methodist Church. The upper northeast, which is falling, collapsing, maybe not collapsing, declining rapidly. The upper Midwest, I read you some figures about their decline at the rate of about 7% or 8% a decade, a second ago. And then the most rapid shrinkage and decline is in the far west, where the huge, area-wise, the huge United Methodist Conference that basically goes from the Rockies all the way to the coast, a massive part of the United States, and a part of the United States in which the population has soared in the most recent two or three decades, the general conference in that section of the United Methodist Church is down to about 300,000 members. So the Midwest is particularly interesting and crucial because the cities, and we're dealing with a church that's in Minneapolis-St. Paul. The cities are much more liberal than the largely rural sections of the Midwest. Think of it this way. I'll try to translate this into your language. Think about Lutheranism in the Midwest. How big a difference is there between an ELCA congregation in Minneapolis-St. Paul and a Missouri Synod or Wisconsin Synod church out in a small city or a normal-sized Midwestern town. (laughs) Two completely different universes. Exactly. Right now in Methodism, other than the fact that there are Wesleyan congregations, and there are some of them in the Midwest, right now the Methodists are all still under the same umbrella. So if you were trying to have a divorce, in some way we're repeating Lutheran history, aren't we? That was one of the first churches to kind of have to deal with biblical authority and a host of other things, and you had some pretty important splits that helped create some of the denominations that exist now. But try to imagine trying to hold and have peace in a denomination that ranged from, like I said, an ELCA congregation in Minneapolis-St. Paul to a Missouri or Wisconsin synod parish or two or three or a hundred in smaller towns and smaller cities. That's not a recipe for peace, and yet that's where the Methodists are. At the same time, even conservative Lutherans and even conservative Southern Baptists in a lot of areas are facing the fact that their congregations are aging and in some cases are in decline, maybe not at the same rapid rate of the liberal mainline, but nobody's going to run away from these issues without thinking, what is it that we need to do to establish our identity and to build our churches in ways, hopefully, I mean, what a unique concept. I mean, I know that this is the case in orthodoxy. 
what if you tried to create services that would have all age groups in it at the same time? What would that look like in a lot of Protestant contexts where you don't have a worship tradition that kind of trumps the trends and the fads? I mean, you're not going to have a U2 Eagles or electronic dance version of an Orthodox service anytime soon. We don't even need electricity for our services. We could do it all with candles if we had to. Other traditions have an authoritative worship tradition. And to some degree, in Lutheranism, I would say that's one of the issues now affecting the Missouri Synod, which is a difference between kind of a megachurch evangelical approach to worship and what others would call a more liturgical approach to worship. That issue of style and doctrinal content is really the other story in these cases, in addition to the issues of birth rate, evangelism, etc. That was really sounded really confusing to me. Did you hang in through that? Yeah, I did. I'm curious, you mentioned this before, but why did the Associated Press pick up on this story? Oh, it made a great headline. And that first story was written by a veteran journalist with decades of experience in that area. And I have no doubt whatsoever he was tipped off on this by someone in the church his age who was furious about what was happening. And he wrote a story that phased out some of the nuance that ecclesiastical people tend to talk to, a little bit of United Methodist and church growth jargon. And he basically said, this church has 27 people left, almost all of them have gray hair, and the church has told them to pack up and leave. Well, that caught the attention of the Associated Press. Simple as that. I first saw this via a Facebook group, a large Lutheran Facebook group that I'm a member of, and it was what I call an outrage post. It was just someone read the headline, read the story, posted it. I read the headline, read the story, and I kind of by proxy, partook of a little bit of the outrage there. But why is it so important that as consumers, especially in kind of the outrage post-age, that we read beyond the headlines and even then remain skeptical at times? Well, for one thing, this is what happens when you have newsrooms full of people who don't speak church. And a lot of what's strong about Sarah's story at the Washington Post, Sarah Pulliam Bailey's story at the Washington Post, is that she not only speaks church, she speaks Midwest. And she understands a lot about that region and some of the denominations that reside there. And her story just includes a lot of nuance. I'd love to have her go back and do another story following up on some of the larger framing issues that we're talking about here, I guarantee you she knows they exist. The issue is just how much room do you have in an individual story. This is why we need to be careful when we read these things. This is yet another example of why newsrooms need veteran, experienced religion reporters. These subjects are big, and they're complex, and at the same time, they're emotional. And I'll go back, I'm going to tell a story that I've I've told listeners here about before, but I think it's the perfect story to sum this up. And that was years ago in Charlotte in the 80s when I was writing a story about the last Lutheran church in town. Now, this is at the time of those splits and the mergers and all this other stuff. 
the last Lutheran church in town that was refusing to go to the new hymnal of what I believe it was what what eventually would become the ELCA or already had. And when I went to the church, I met with the head of the committee, and it was an elderly man, someone probably in his mid-70s, maybe even approaching 80. And he took me through the hymnal, and he showed me all kinds of things about why it was liturgically inferior to the new book, and why it was a great expression of Lutheran hymnody, and why the older members of the congregation thought this was far superior. Does this sound familiar? I mean, exactly what we're talking about. Why they didn't want to be forced to change their worship style, and in effect kind of suggested that maybe y'all should just sort of leave or go to the quiet old people service. Well, when we got done with the interview, we were walking out, and we stopped in the back row of the church. And we were just kind of, you know, doing some chit-chat before I left. And he reached over in the pew, and he pulled out a worn-out copy of that old hymnal. And he held it up in front of me, and suddenly, there, instantly, there were tears in his eyes running down his cheek. And he said, I married my wife with this book. We baptized our children with this book. I buried my wife with this book. They are not taking this away from me. Now, all of his logical, liturgical, and church history and hymnody arguments were set aside for a second. That was his voice, and that was his heart. And I guarantee you that that's a part of what's behind this Methodist story as well. One of the elderly people poignantly said, well, what if I die? I mean, or was paraphrased, in effect saying, what if I die during this year when we're supposed to be away from the church while they work things out and pull in all these new young families? What if I die during that time? Am I even going to get to have my funeral in my own church? Doesn't that strike you as a more core emotional heart cry than talking about kind of this nuanced, we're going to re-jumpstart your church committee? That was real people talking about their real feelings. And yeah, it's an emotional story and even an angry story. And then that's, that's part of it. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. Kathy Altman joins us on the other side of the break. She has a compelling story to tell. She was an abortionist. She's written in USA Today, I was an abortionist. The abortion industry isn't willing to prioritize patient safety. We'll hear her story and talk about safety in abortion clinics next. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. lutheranpublicradio.org. 
What is The Lutheran Witness? Simple. It's a monthly magazine on faith and life, theology and culture that helps readers interpret the contemporary world from a Lutheran Christian perspective. Filled with expert insights, good writing, and inspiring stories, it also provides essential church information for LCMS members. What is The Lutheran Witness? Simple. It's the flagship periodical of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and it has been for more than a century. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe today. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. Concordia University Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're committed to increasing LCMS faculty and staff members. Hi, this is Dr. Russell Don, president of Concordia University Chicago. If you're a member of our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregation, please consider joining our staff. And if you have a terminal degree, please consider joining our faculty. Send us an email at human.resources at cuchicago.edu. Our cities are some of the greatest mission fields on the planet, but the footprint of the church is shrinking. We dare not shrink from our cities. Christ is needed now in our urban areas. From chaos, turmoil, decay, death, and destruction, Jesus brings peace, hope, resurrection, eternal life, and rebuilding. And you can help by being a hero for the city. Find out how at lcms.org slash citymission or on Facebook at LCMS City Mission. Every city needs a hero. Capes and helmets not required.